I think we're here. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's Hi. the afternoon. It's Monday afternoon, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. It's been a while since we've done an afternoon show. It has it? been a while since we've done an afternoon show. But why are we doing an afternoon show today, Jen? Because that's when you scheduled it. But why did I schedule it for this? I, I don't know. I'm not in on that. We, I'm just assuming it needed to be. Well, we have a very special guest that we're bringing on today. And why don't you tell us a little about our wonderful guest that's coming on? Okay, so I, it, it's, there's a lot, I don't know, there's so many connections how I feel like to this whole thing, but um, the name of the book is Drug Use for Grownups, and it's Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, and it's by Dr. Carl Hart, and he is, well, he'll, he'll say what he is, but I'm like a neuropsychopharmacologist, something like that, and, and here's the thing is, I have a really good friend from college who actually does that. Like she did her like research in MDMA and all this stuff. And so I find it all very, very interesting. And also as a very strong civil libertarian, I've always thought that drugs are not a criminal issue. If people want them, they should have that. Like I've just always been very civil liberty. So I was very excited. I'm convinced that the majority of this country is libertarian left. Uh, they're just, and we're going to talk about, but it's, it's a fear mongering problem and it's always been a fear. Well, it is, you know, ever with like, you know, I mean, we could talk about reefer madness, but it's more than that, <laughs> but it's always been a fear mongering thing. And we're a very ignorant country in particular, and people are very fear, like they make policy based on fear and profit. There's also, you know, there's also profit motives and stuff involved. So a hundred percent. So guys, this is the book. I, 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 this is when I feel bad that I don't have an actual book because I did audio and so no one can see it, but it's drug use for grownups. And so, yeah. And Dr. Hart does his own audio. So if you don't read it, but you hear it. Does it still count as reading? I, I count it as reading. I've been over the past couple of years. People know well, I that. I guess what it comes down to is if someone were to ask you questions about the book and you can cite specific references to it and issues as it's, as it is based, I think that would technically have to count even if it isn't the traditional sense of opening a book. You've been absorbed the information from said book. In fact, I was I, I actually felt like I was getting a private lecture. So let's bring him on. Doctor, this is very exciting. Dr. Carl Hart, welcome to Generational Change. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for saying all those nice things. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you and I appreciate you sharing. And I know that you have another book or several that you have written before this, but that you really shared your journey from being kind of in that drugs are bad, we need to kind of rid society of their ills camp and your sort of progression to where you are. And I, I very much appreciate that. So would you talk a little bit about like what your background is and how you sort of started on this? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll go back uh, maybe to the 80s when I was just graduating from high school in the early 1980s. Um, at the time, uh, it was right before the sort of crack hysteria. And I went into the military. I went into the Air Force. I did four years in the Air Force from 84 to 88, in part because uh, I came from a resource poor family community. Um, and it was a way in order to um, uh, get an education. So I, I went to the Air Force and I did my undergraduate studies uh, primarily in the Air Force. Uh, after getting out of the Air Force, uh, uh, couldn't find a job, those kind of things. So I went to graduate school studying neuroscience and studying the effects of drugs, um, trying to figure out the, effect, the effects of drugs on the brain, in part because we were still under this sort of haze of the hysteria related to crack cocaine. So I figured that 
one way I could contribute is by studying neuroscience, figuring out how cocaine interact with neurons in the brain, and maybe I can help develop treatments to help people who are suffering from addiction related to cocaine. And if I could do that, then that was one way I could serve the community, and I thought the community would be improved as a result. And so I did that from uh, the late 1980s until now. So we were talking more than 30 years of just hard studying. And, and in the process, what I discovered was that um, we basically been lied to about uh, the uh, not only the effects of drugs, uh, but what drugs are doing to various communities and drugs have been scapegoated for things that we don't really want to deal with in our society. And as you alluded to, um, uh, it's very profitable uh, to have this narrative or to pursue this sort of um, course of action. Because today uh, in the United States, we spend $40 billion a year in our drug control efforts. And a lot of people's salaries depend upon that. On that. And then making these kind of discoveries or realizing this, um, uh, I just thought it was the responsible patriotic thing to do is to tell the American public what's going on. Uh, having been in the military, having learned something about protecting people's life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, all of those kind of things. So it just felt like it, it's what we're supposed to do. All of my heroes did this sort of thing. People like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, all of those people did the same sort of thing. Um, but somehow, when it comes to drugs, uh, it's been a hell of a lot more difficult uh, convincing people um, that uh, this, too, is this falls under those basic route, uh, rights. And drugs are, are not the problem. There are other things. And then we can get into those issues as well. But I hope that's enough of a background to help people to understand who I am. Right. And, and the fact is, you are a science person that does actual research and has conducted studies with drugs. Like, I, I just think that when people who are really in the know about literally the chemical composition of how things work, um, it's very helpful to hear that. And so just a little bit of my experience. I went to University of Colorado in Boulder. You're only a few years older than me because I graduated high school in 88. And so when I was a freshman in Boulder... I want to say it was like a third of students were doing ecstasy regularly. Like this was a pretty regular occurrence. And as a young, stupid person, I just did it because, yeah, they were doing it. So that's fun. And everything worked out well. But now as an adult, it freaks me out because we really don't know what's in stuff unless we're in that like group of people that really understands chemistry. And this is one of the things that you really focus on in terms of people's civil liberties to use is being able to know what it is they're using. And the idea of having um, free drug testing um, sites, would you, would you explain that? Because like I have to say, like as now a person who has kids and whatever, if somebody were to offer me, say, here, have some X, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know what's in that. But then if you said to me, hey, this is really good. And we're going to get into that P6 or whatever that was you were talking about, because I'm going to need to know about that. But like, if I were with people that knew what they were talking about, I'd feel infinitely more comfortable. Yeah. So we need to separate uh, the effects of drugs, like something like MDMA or even cocaine or even heroin from what people get on the streets, because those are right. different things and they're not the same thing. But we can plate the two in order to frighten the population. And then we don't keep the population safe by doing uh, this sort of activity. Um, 
So the, uh, every day, weekday, uh, uh, in, uh, in a year, we at Columbia, places like Columbia, we give these drugs to people as part of our studies uh, every day without incident. And so, uh, and you, the taxpayers, you pay for this. Uh, and, and so we have generated a database, a large la- database about the effect of these drugs on people. And the predominant effect is that of all of these drugs is that these effects are positive. People feel good, they feel euphoric, they have a better time. That's the predominant effect. Now, it is true, people, some people get in trouble and they happen to use drugs as well. Um, now, oftentimes we can pl- conflate why they're getting in trouble. And now that's one thing with the people who actually take the drugs that I'm talking about and get in trouble. Um, uh, we know that people who are experiencing co-occurring psychiatric illnesses and other illnesses may be uh, at risk for having problems related to some of these drugs. We know that. And then the other thing is that many people who take drugs uh, in the natural ecology and illicitly don't even have the drug that they think they have and they get in trouble. And so that's a whole different issue. But the point is, is that these drugs that humans seek, they seek them for a reason. The reason is they work. They make people feel better. Uh, a wide range of things. They enhance uh, social interactions. Uh, they enhance sexual intimacy. You name it. All of these pro-social activities. That's why people do drugs. So the question becomes, for me, it's very simple. Just like alcohol or just like something else. Um, adults have the right to use those substances as part of their life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What is our responsibility as a society? Our, our responsibility as a society is to try and figure out uh, the, con- the under the conditions which you're more likely to have positive effects versus negative effects, and also make sure that the uh, people have some sort of quality control, just like we have with the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, when it comes to our foods, when it comes to our drugs. The same is true here, and we've abdicated that responsibility. And so today, when we hear people talking about an opioid crisis, and we can talk about this, by the way, the term is quite nebulous for um, intentional reasons. Uh, You don't know if they're talking about overdoses, you you don't know if they're talking about addiction, what are you really talking about here? So when you hear people talking about an opioid crisis, what you really have a crisis of is a, a crisis of adulterated substance. And that's an easy fix. Uh, some countries have, for example, they instituted these things where they call drug checking, where people can submit small samples of their drug and then get a chemical printout of everything that's contained in that substance. So if something is uh, potentially toxic, you know not to take it. Whereas in the U.S., um, it's like playing Russian roulette when you buy drugs illicitly. That's the real problem. And that's where uh, I've been trying to get people to focus on. And by the way, drug checking facilities are quite inexpensive. Uh, All of our major local police forces have this technology. Uh, We have the technology in universities but we just haven't made it available to the public. And so um, it seems irresponsible to me um, as a public servant that we haven't made it uh, available to the public. Yeah, I agree. And so let's talk about the opioid problem because we recently had author Beth Macy on our show, who's the author of Dope Sick and Raising Lazarus. And, you know, there is absolutely 
a legitimate problem of dope sick people and addicted people. And the biggest part of the problem is the government doesn't help them. They just keep hurting them. But this is a legitimate concern the amount of prescriptions that were that were handed out for so many years I, and I don't I don't know if that's a concern I know that's the bullshit that people talk about but I, okay. I no I mean when you look at the data for example if we look at the numbers of prescriptions like we saw the number of prescriptions over time uh dramatically decreasing you still see these issues when we when we and there of course are irresponsible were irresponsible physician but that's a minority we have exaggerated those numbers or we've highlighted those numbers to the point where people who are in real pain can no longer get opioid prescriptions because right. of that sort of hysteria. So those people that exaggerate this or highlight that really are disturbing to me uh, because what they're really doing is they're going to ensure that pain patients will no longer ever be able to get opioids. And opioids have been with us longer than many of these drugs to deal with this thing, pain. So the problem has almost nothing to do with the drugs themselves and more that have has more to do with our restrictive policies. Uh, because if people had actual pharmaceutical grade opioids, we wouldn't see these problems. Right, the problem is coming from people that maybe it started out as something that was typical and for whatever reason, certain people are more prone to addiction. And so that's sort of where it gets out of control, I guess, like because I, I don't I don't. Again, those narratives are no, those those narratives are troubling. Uh, you know, when it comes to addiction, the fact remains the vast majority of people who have done any drug do not meet criteria for drug addiction. And so what that tells you is that you have to look beyond the drug. And the problem is, is not the drug, it's something else. Right. So when we're talking about this in the context of an opioid crisis, we're still blaming the drug. And, and that's not going to get us to any solutions when we're looking at the problems. Okay, I, I, I hear you. And that is why I think that, they, that certain communities were targeted based on their socioeconomic position, based on trouble that they were already in. I do think there's a huge intersection between socioeconomic issues. Um, and where people say there is this, where there tends to be a crisis. Just yeah, that's true, but, but please understand, there are people who have resources and they are in pain and they can't yeah. get their medications and they're suffering and in many cases, they're committing suicide. So this is cutting across all of those various communities. And this is the thing that I hope people understand and see that we're in this together. We're speaking with Dr. Carl Hart, author of Drug Use for Grownups, which is quite the catchy title, I must say. Um, you know, it seems like we have everything backwards in the United States in terms of the most harmful effects that uh, a drug, if you will, can have on the human body, particularly alcohol abuse. And then, of course, there are uh, different degrees of uh, types of opioids that are available. From your perspective, when it comes to cannabis, mushrooms, things of that nature, things that are very recreational, have proven to be relatively harmless. Why is it that there is still, even to this day, seemingly a crusade of a war on drugs? Even though most people will admit it is a complete and abject failure, it has been an unbelievable waste of money. It has created the prison industrial complex, which is extremely profitable, especially revisitism. So from your perspective, why do you think that this is still a, a, a war that's being fought, which is completely pointless at this point? 
Well, uh, for starters, the war on drugs has been extremely successful. As you kind of alluded to, you said it was unsuccessful, yeah. but no, then, you described, then you described successes because it's important that people understand that 40-some billion dollars a year every year um, is why this thing continues. Lots of people uh, make money off of the war on drugs. Law enforcement is an easy one, we know. Prison officials, that's an easy one, we all know. But we don't think about the reporters who write for the New York Times. Uh, in no other area you can write such bullshit and not be challenged and not have evidence to support your perspective. We think about movies, the movie Dope Sick. That was nonsense. That sort of thing, uh, You they ask you to suspend reality and you, whenever a comedian talks about drugs, most of what, mostly what they talk about is bullshit. But yet we suspend our reality and act as if it's real. Um, and so all of these people are benefiting from the war on drugs and our perspective on drugs, um, because drugs, we have agreed, um, like we, you, you raised your, the point earlier, you're a parent. Parents no longer don't have to, they don't have to parent in this domain because the government says it's bad. Therefore, as a parent, you don't have to deal with it. Um, so all of these people have been complicit in making sure that this thing continues. And, and until we see it as a success, um, uh, but we're going to continue because it's the most successful job jobs programs in our history in the United States, the war on drugs is. Yeah. It's really more a war on on people. It you know the drugs are doing just fine. You know, like the drugs are, they're they're just fine. It's really a war on people. Well, yeah, drugs won. Yeah, right, right. exactly. How much of an impact do you think a universal healthcare system would have in the country in terms of pulling the teeth away from big pharma and private insurance? Yeah, you know. Um, I wish we had universal health care in our country just so everyone just had basic health care taken care of. Um, I live part time uh, between uh, I live between New York and Switzerland and in Switzerland, everyone has health care. And in Switzerland also, they um, as part of uh, some drug program, some people who are addicted to heroin get heroin as part of their program. Then the majority of those people have jobs and they all have homes and they all have health care. They have and and more importantly, they're happy. Uh, and so uh, if we had this basic sort of safety net, health care for people, um, maybe it would enhance the happiness of our society and we wouldn't be so mean and, and, and spiteful towards one another. Uh, so I am a proponent of just basic health care in terms of what our pharmaceutical companies do. Um, that's part of capitalism. And, and so if we take that out of the context of, uh, of capital, like, like, like uh, we want to treat pharmaceutical companies differently than we treat the people who sell Nike, we have to look at the whole system. You know, um, it's just if you're going to incentivize people for making money like that, well, you have to make sure you have in place um, those um, uh, checks to make sure that people don't overdo it. Um, but that's part of capitalism. And which, by the way, I am not an expert, so I have to be careful. Right, that's I want, not I want your people to, I want people to understand that I don't, uh, I don't want to be outside of my lane. No, I appreciate very much um, what you did, what you said in this book in particular, where you were talking about 
the importance of taking a stand. And it's like this coming out of a closet situation. So many, many years ago when I, so I have now a 22 year old. And I remember when he was born and I had a lot of friends that are cannabis users and we're all everybody's all happy and everything's all good. And then they sort of feel like you either have to lie to your children or quit. And neither of those options were suitable to me. So I actually decided to just tell him this was what I did. And I never stopped using. And that's just worked for me just fine. Um, but it was always like this very closeted, everybody's so like ashamed or whatever. And not I'll walk straight down the street smoking a bowl. Like, I don't really care. And that to me is, I know the epitome of privilege and I get that. Like I see, okay, there's not this rash of like middle-aged white women being arrested for cannabis use. So I feel like if I didn't take advantage of it, it's sort of just wasted. Yeah. You know, um, but that's a lovely thing. It like when, when we talk about like privilege, for example, I don't think we mean pl- privilege in that sense. I think we oftentimes twist this, you know, like you as a white woman walking down the street smoking, it, um, you're like, okay, um, I see that too as a protest. And I think that's like, that is some civil disobedience. Um, and it, and, and oh. it's showing up on behalf of other people who um, can't do it maybe. And that's a really good thing. That's not like we oftentimes use privilege in this sort of negative way like you have privilege i don't not, and and it's, and it's not in that way you want people to do exactly that um that's why i came out of the cl- closet in this book um i talked about all of my drug use of course the media only focused on the fact that i've used heroin and that that sort of thing because then they they were relying on stereotypes of the heroin user um, to dismiss everything else I had to say. Um, but the real goal is to get out of the closet because if everyone got out of the closet, then we would see how the typical drug user does not look like that typical drug users that we see in the media, in these movies, uh, uh, with some comedian on stage. That's not the typical drug user. The typical drug user is someone who is responsible. They take care of their family. Um, They are uh, uh, community servants. Uh, They volunteer in their community. That's the typical drug user. Yeah, I assure you, my kids are infinitely better off that I am a partaker in cannabis than they would be if I were not. I I know that with with absolute certainty. So, um, but I grew up with this. So my parents were '60s people. My dad was. I used to back in the day before weed was so done so well. There used to be seeds, and I used to my little fingers were able to pick out the seeds for for him. So like I grew up around it. It was never a big deal to me. Um, But yet my parents did have friends that overdosed back in the day. And so there was this sort of scare thing um, going on about it. But most of it, if I think about it now, was probably avoidable if there had been education and if somebody was able to be like the responsible grown up. Can we talk about overdose for a second? Because I think that that's an important one. Um, So like when people say uh, someone uh, died from a heroin overdose, dying from a single opioid is rare unless you have one of those extremely potent opioids like a fentanyl analog or something like that. But like someone dying from a heroin overdose, that's that's rare. Only heroin. 
So people, when we think about people who are dying from overdoses or overdose, typically they've combined an opioid with multiple other sedatives, large doses of other sedatives. And so you want people, particularly inexperienced people, not to combine various sedatives uh, that de- because that, then that would decrease the likelihood of them overdosing. Another sort of concern as it relates to opioids is that there are people who don't know that something like Percocet. Percocet is a formulation that contains a, a low dose of opioid, like five milligrams of oxycodone and about 500 milligrams of acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Now, if someone is seeking an opioid high from those types of pills, that means they have to take about 10 or 20 of those pills to really get the opioid high. By that, at that level, you're talking about grams of acetaminophen. And if you do this on consecutive days, uh, you run the risk of injuring or shutting down your liver. And that sort of liver toxicity can actually be fatal. And people just don't know these basic sort of amounts of information that could help keep them safe. Because as we talk about the opioid epidemic, we never provide any information that could actually help people uh, continue to be safe uh, out there in terms of what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, look, I would like to live in a world where all of that was just available and I knew that it would be safe and I could be like, oh yeah, I could do that again. It's been many years, but that was really fun. I mean, when I was in Boulder, ecstasy, mushrooms, um, LSD, like all the time, like it was, it was just commonplace. And in retrospect, I don't think that was probably very smart because I didn't know where that was from, I, you know, I mean. And, I, all, and, all, and also, I think you, you raise a good point, you know, like the title of the book is called Drug Use for Grownups. Exactly. Oftentimes in our country, when we talk about drug use, what we're doing is talking about drug use when you were an adolescent or early 20s. I mean, when we were in our 20s or adolescents, we do dumb shit. We did dumb shit. And, and but you grow up. And you learn to do things differently, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's driving your car too fast, whatever it is. I mean, and so drugs, drug use in that context would also likely uh, you you're also likely to have made some mistakes. But as an adult, you learn some things. But uh, in the public, in the public's mind, we only talk about drug use from this adolescent perspective. And, and so that's a big mistake in our society. So in the book, I tried to help people to understand adults, grownups do it like this. And it's not this sort of Beavis and Butthead <laughs> nonsense that we are uh, perpetuating in our society. I prefer Harold and Kumar, but yes. And I do that movie though, as ridiculous as it is, really did ring true to me. Some of the little things about the college days. Um, but we weren't scared. We didn't know to be scared. And that, that is something that I would have, look, I would probably do stuff again if it was in the right environment. And I also like the way you very much talked about setting, because whenever I read studies about any drug, I always have thought that in the back of my head. I'm like, that's not what my experience was at all. And I've done that with that. And I, and like, so my personal experience never has matched up with, especially when we're talking about um, hallucinogens with other people's, like what, what you hear and definitely with ecstasy. Although I will say that I'm not a huge fan because I don't love speed. Like I, it's just not so much my 
thing. I tend to be more of a, a pothead, really. We're speaking with yeah. Dr. Carl Hart, author of Drug Use for Grownups. And I think that, you know, one thing that isn't talked about. Um, He's square. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I think is important to discuss is the fact that most of the uh, overdose issues, the things that happen to people, um, is probably directly correlated to the low quality grade of the material that is being sold on the street. We've heard about synthetic, you know, cannabis and things like that. Um, you don't really hear about it too much with, you know, people that are, you know, have the ways and means financially to get the good stuff, if you will. Uh, can you talk about the impact that? low-grade drugs do end up having? Because when it's sold on the street for a very low amount compared to what it can be sold for, let's say in the burbs and, you know, the wealthy neighborhoods of the urban cities and things like that, um, is there a difference, you know, regarding uh, the overall effects that, that it does have on your body? Yeah, well, of course, um, if people are, uh, for example, they only have access to adulterated drug, we don't we don't know what's contained in the drug. And um, oftentimes we hear in the press that opioids on the street, for example, are contaminated or adulterated with fentanyl analogs. Uh, fentanyl is an opioid. It's an FDA approved medication. Um, but um, it's a lot more potent than heroin, meaning that it requires a less of, less amounts to produce an effect. And if people don't realize that it's fentanyl right. and not heroin, they may take too much and they may overdose as a result. But if they knew precisely what they had, then they would be able to uh, moderate and they would be able to take the amount that's appropriate. And so when so you highlight an important problem here. The important problem is ignorance, not yeah. knowing what is in the substance. Uh, and this is an easy fix. Uh, as I alluded to earlier with the drug checking programs, they do this in Spain, Switzerland, the Netherlands, even Colombia. They, they have these sort of facilities so people can submit small samples of their substances and figure out or determine or get a printout of what is in the substance. Um, and they don't have the, these issues related to overdose that we have in this country. And so if our political officials really cared about the public, these facilities would be in certainly in all of our major cities available to the population. Uh, they would be free and anonymous like they are in those other countries that I, I just laid out. Um, and so uh, this is not this is not difficult. This is very simple. Yeah, these are policy choices. If our elected officials actually cared about our well-being, then we would have health care. So I find it so fascinating that, you know, how they're always talking about like what's safe for us. They're being what's safer. Yeah, what's safe for us would be health care. That that actually would help. Uh, and so I wanted I wanted to ask you and I can't think of it off the top of my head. This is the one problem about doing audiobook is that I can't, I'm not able to highlight. I mean, you, you can't highlight sometimes. And you specifically referenced something. And I remember making a mental note that if in Spain must try this, and it was something that was like P6, I don't know what it was, but you described it. And I'm like, yeah, that's my kind of vibe. What six was APB. that? 6-APV. Six 6-APV. Six, six and what is that? 
Uh, 6-APB, you said you don't really like amphetamines like effects, and it's it's really uh, an amphetamine derivative, but it's uh, just a modification of the MDMA structure. So it's okay. an MDMA-like drug that uh, MDMA, sometimes you get overwhelmed with the rush or uh, the waves, as they call it, with 6-APB. With 6-APB, you don't get the wave so much. It's just a gentle, long-lasting, kind of nice euphoric, uh, um, serene space that you're in. Um, it, it certainly enhances your empathy and also um, it makes one feel more magnanimous, more generous. And, um, and so uh, that's, that's how I can describe it. It's, it's one of uh, my favorites of uh, 6APP is. But that's not obviously something that we can get here. It's a very interesting thing because it's in the um, legal gray space area. I believe it still oh. remains there um, where people uh, people have gotten it uh, by just ordering it online because I don't at least it wasn't technically banned. Um, right. uh, 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 at least that's the way it was a few years ago. Um, uh, and, and so uh, it may still remain in that legal gray space, uh, gray area. Yeah, I actually remember when ecstasy was in that. I I remember that before that was like made a thing. It wasn't a thing until they made it a thing. They made it a thing, uh, I believe, in 1985 or so. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lloyd Benson was the senator from Texas, and he really pushed that one at that time. Yeah. What is the motivation at this point to, you know, kind of keep this going? I mean, you talk about the elected officials in this country. Uh you may or may not know, Jen ran for Congress in 2020 against one of the biggest drug warriors of them all, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, who has been in bed with the worst of the worst, including payday lenders, uh, all of the cycle of, uh, you know, poverty driven uh, entities, uh, but not the least of which uh, big alcohol and big pharma. Uh, at this point, uh, we like to talk constantly on our podcast, even though we're definitely on what you would call the left side of politics. Uh, we try to be extremely nonpartisan. And what we do find is that with particular issues like foreign policy, civil liberties, and especially the war on drugs, there is a huge crossover intersectionally between progressives and libertarians. There is a huge amount of agreement on these issues. If you even look in the chat that's going on right now, we have a combination of, of sans people. We have an assortment. And they agree. They agree wholeheartedly on these issues recognizing the failure of the war on drugs, the prison industrial complex and things of that nature. Um, what do you see as being the best way to advance this message going forward? Because right now we do have a lot of drug warriors in high elected positions of office, but I kind of believe that most of them are drug warriors simply because that's what the corporate money is telling them to do. So wh where do you see the solutions lying in terms of being able to rectify not just short term, but long term as well, because this nightmare of the war on drugs has to end and end as soon as possible. Um, so uh, the subtitle of the book uh, kind of provides some clue what I believe. The subtitle is called Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. And our country, our founding document for all of us who are Americans is says that each of us have three birthrights, at least life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Having served time in the military, I understand a little something about protecting other people's rights. 
And that's my first duty. My first responsibility is to make sure I protect other people's rights, not my own, um, and not be selfish. And that's what has happened in the country a lot. And so if we just worked to make sure everybody had at least those three birthrights, that means that they can live how they see fit so long as they don't prevent other people from enjoying those rights as well. As long as if we do that, uh, we will then see this sort of connection and we'll see all of us in, in this system together and our responsibility is to each other. But as long as we are being petty, talking about our own individual rights, um, it's not going to work. And so uh, I would encourage people, just go read the Declaration of Independence. It's very short. And something like the third sentence says that, you know, these three rights, if the government is not uh, protecting and guaranteeing these rights, they can't secure these rights, then it's our responsibility to rid ourselves of that government. When it comes to drug use, you have the right to alter your consciousness. You have the right to bodily autonomy. And we should be protecting people's rights. But we have somehow uh, made an exception for drugs. The Declaration doesn't make any exception. Thomas Jefferson, he loved his opioids. Ben Franklin loved his opioids. I mean, those guys, they had their issue with other, uh, other sort of concerns. Right. But, but the, right. point is, the point is, these words are bigger than them. And these ideals are bigger than them. And these ideals have been copied by other nations because they are so important. And so it ain't that complicated if we simply fight to make sure other people have those rights. That's it. I actually saw something in the chat go by from one of our people, um, Carla, and I, I know the answer to this because I have listened to the entire book, but uh, she wants to know your thoughts on uh, peyote and ayahuasca. Frozen screen. I think we're frozen. I think we're frozen. I hear right. you. I oh, hear you, you can hear me? Okay, yeah, well, yeah. you're all right, there you are. So thoughts on peyote and ayahuasca. I've not done either of those. And pre predominantly because my understanding from friends who have done ayahuasca is the sick part. And I'm not I'm not hip to that. Like, I'm just that's just not my thing. But yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's cool. I mean, you know, it's like let's just think about sexual positions. Some people like a certain <laughs> sexual position. Other people don't. Uh, but it's not for me to say what they should do. If they're into that, mad props to you. I'll fight to protect your right to engage in that, 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 that behavior. The same is true here with ayahuasca and peyote. Some people uh, come out with these transformative experiences, oh, yeah. and that's beautiful. Um, they're not particularly mine, may not be my particular favorite substances, but that's okay. I will fight for your right to do them. Um, and so um, that's fine. Yeah, I knew that was the answer was that sort of in the same category as everything else, because it really is a civil liberties issue. And it's always been a civil liberties issue to me. And I think people should be allowed it's to a do human, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human rights issue. Human rights. It's bigger right. than that. This is right. a human right to bodily autonomy. Damn that every democracy in the world has this in their constitution. Even the Russians have this kind of thing in their constitution. It's we over police 
And we also, it's like on the one hand, oh, we're this democratic republic. But on the other hand, we really like authoritarianism and we really like leaders. We like leaders and we like these sort of like cult, these tribal things that we sort of follow. So then it somehow justifies forfeiting our sort of civil liberties. And it's That's very, cool. it's very disheartening. Um, I'm not a fan. I think everybody should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. But we're also now living in the in the post Roe versus Wade era. When you want to talk about like an infringement on my bodily autonomy, that nothing infuriates me more than watching people discuss what I can and cannot do with my person. You're absolutely right. All of this is connected. And so like when we think about uh, making sure people can see the connections between their struggles and other people's uh, struggles, thank you for bringing up the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, uh, situation because it's all connected. Um, and this is what we want people to understand that uh, today they may be coming after those folks, but they will eventually be coming after you. So it's it's our responsibility to make sure we, pr we protect other people's rights. Right. I agree. Speaking of probably our two greatest founding fathers, the author of the Declaration of Independence did say, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. And our smartest and probably most effective founding father did say, those who are willing to sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. And that is the world that we live in today. I've learned a lot from Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Franklin. And I've learned a lot from you today, Dr. Hart. As I'm sure. You no know. accounting for racism on their parts. Uh, well, you know, we it's we, a, we can't we, we can't win not, them all. We cannot win them all. Uh, and, and despite what Mr. Jefferson said regarding slavery, he still wasn't willing to do what was necessary. Yeah, so don't get me started. it is what it is. But as yeah, it's, it's important for us to it's really important for us to not lose sight of these um, words that ring true today. And that is uh, this focus on people's liberty, even if Jefferson couldn't live up to him himself. Those words are they still remain true today. Yeah. What are you working on? Where can people find your work? Uh, get involved with anything that you're doing if they would like to potentially read your book or follow. You no, know, he's work. a professor. Well, there's that too. Yeah, so um, of course I'm, I'm teaching my courses at Columbia, and um, I'm, I'm I'm doing right. I'm always writing, uh, thinking about the, the new book, the new project. But uh, in the meantime, writing op eds, um, and more importantly, uh, I'm trying to be happy. I'm enjoying my life. Um, I have less time here than I've already been here, so um, I'm enjoying my life, my wife, my family. Um, I'm. Just I'm trying to be happy so um, I don't contribute to any of the meanness that is happening in our society today. Seriously, they're mean. I'm not on social media anymore because they're just too mean. I just don't need that negative crap in my headspace. I work very hard to create a good headspace. I don't need someone else's crap in there. Well, let's be honest. I think that I'm the way that it. certain social media platforms are designed, and I'm sure you can attest to this, uh, human behavior, especially when it gets closer and closer to human interaction, direct interaction, is much more cordial and friendly. And the further you get away from that, especially when you get to something so, uh, I guess what you call innocuous is Twitter, uh, people have not just a sense of, you want to say keyboard warrior behavior, but the fact that there is such limited, if at, at all, per, interpersonal interaction 
it leads to sort of the perpetuation of this idea of othering and you're not worth my time and things like that. Uh, I find that the more we're able to interact in person, the easier it is to get along. And that's why being at Columbia University and being in a city where people are constantly interacting with one another, I think makes it a lot easier to deal with those types of issues, whereas other parts of the country where it isn't as easy. Your, your final thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I have to live in Switzerland because um, even in New York and these places, it's uh, the meanness. I, I, I just can't deal with it because you correctly pointed out uh, the situation and tweet with Twitter and, and, and social media. But even even interacting with people in this context, because the environment itself has become so sick, uh, it's hard for uh, me to be in the U.S., because I want to make sure whenever I interact with people that um, I have love in my heart and I interact with people uh, in a way that is lovely. And, 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 and before we go, that is, that's really the point here when we think about psychoactive substances. Uh, one of the most consistent effects is that these substances help to uh, increase euphoria. If yeah. people are feeling good and feeling better, they're more likely to treat other people better. It's really simple. Um, and somehow we lose sight of that simple sort of thing. I know when I'm happy and euphoric, I'm more generous with other people. Um, and so it's lovely to be psychoactively altered. Yeah, I remember the. I remember that. Like it was, yeah, I remember the good old days. I, I mean, cause for me, and when I think about like cannabis, it's not that. Like that to me is just sort of like, I, I mean, I don't know. It's like water, you know, like that's not the same thing, but like really like committing to an evening to do something and, and try something and experience something like I do. Like I miss that. That was really college was fun. Dr. Hart, before you go, is there a place that your book can be purchased that isn't on Amazon? Just curious. Uh, yeah. Your favorite bookstore, your favorite local bookstore, um, anywhere. It's it's everywhere. Yeah. It's it's a major publisher. Uh, so and it's, it's audible, hard. too. And, and Dr. Hart does his own audible. Gotta love it. I did. And I did the audio uh, during uh, the pandemic uh, when I was experiencing all kinds of family deaths and problems. Uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a hard time. So it's hard for me to go back and listen because I right. know the pain well, I that I was in. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Thank you, Doc. We appreciate it. And thank you for what you do. And we will definitely be in touch. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. There was something else I want to do before everybody like goes. I want to show people this thing I got. <clears throat> we have Rob Sands supposed to come on at two. I know. So I have this thing and I want to show you guys. So today I got, I have, I found this website called it here hold on you guys have to understand how cool this is it's called i want some popcorn.com i want some popcorn.com and here's the kind of stuff that they have I, oh no not that now one. you get the other one guys. okay guys Look so here's so the cool thing this is what i need everybody to understand it's alcohol infused popcorn it's alcohol infused popcorn and there's so many different flavors so I got, and not all of the flavors are alcohol infused, but this one is butter rum mm. and it is alcohol infused. And this one is pina colada, Wait, is the, is which that, is, is that Moe's? It's not, it's just a company. Oh, but, and then the other types of flavors are, I got Chicago mix and I got Oreo. 
because this just looked really fun. I was thinking that for Graham. But anyway, guys, if you're interested, it's really great for holiday. These things come. They're really yummy. And it's Iwantsomepopcorn.com. And they're really great. That's what I was going to say. And they come in these really awesome bags and they make really good gifts. So get alcohol infused popcorn. Mm, looks yes, tasty. It is. Say hi to Sophie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got pretty close there. Uh, you think? So, guys, we're waiting on who are we waiting on? Keep just put Rob Sophie Sand. Down. Who want? No, I think I, I think Sophie really likes this. I, I don't know. Sophie it. is um, a different kind of. Sophie's an acquired taste of a dog. She's not Lou. She's got her own thing. She does. Okay, so she's kind of like the Tasmanian devil. So for the, so for those of you uh, who obviously you know you'd have to be living under a rock uh, not to be paying attention to what transpired over the weekend. So journalist Matt Taibbi uh, dropped the information regarding what was transpiring uh, in accordance with corporate media for Hunter Biden's laptop and whether or not that story was relevant and should have been posted or censored. And it was censored. Now, are we still talking about Hunter Biden's laptop? Well, the Twitter files were just released the other day. Oh my God, that's so good. Mm. Oh my God. This is alcohol infused. I'm very happy. Sophie wants. Not good. Oh my God, that's really good. So happy hour. The the sad reality is watching all of the the so-called journalists. They're journalists. I mean, you could call them what you want. You could call them hack journalists. You could call them anything. I get really, really tired of listening to people say, you know, the worst part about what Matt Taibbi did is that they said that he's not a journalist anymore or that he's fallen so far from grace. Why? Because he 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 put the Twitter files out that were given to him by Elon Musk. You don't have to like Elon Musk. The question is, is the information provided accurate or not? And the information is absolutely correct. I don't know what the information is or whether or not I give a crap. That they deliberately made sure that the Hunter Biden laptop story was called Russian disinformation. It's not accurate. It didn't happen. What did you think would happen? How do you think that people cover how do you think that damage control is done for elected people's families? Like that's the doing, typical damage control. And they're still doing it now. They're still doing it now saying that, oh, well, in reality, uh, the Trump people were trying to do the same thing and, and this and that. And I'm thinking. No, yeah, it wasn't get, a puppy treat. It's the popcorn. <laughs> no, we get it. it, it the, the system's corrupt. And this idea that there wasn't nefarious wheelings and dealings going on here is the big problem. It's like this lack of acknowledgement. It's not a question of whether what Matt Taibbi released is correct. And some say, oh, it's not, it's it's a nothing burger or it's a big deal. And all I'm thinking is. It's ambulance chaser like. It's not really. There wasn't anything that I read there that wasn't something that I suspected already. It's what you Mm. would call confirmation or even confirmation bias, depending on the perspective that you're looking at it from. This one's butter rum. So. What is the solution here? If you do believe that free speech should be be absolute without the intent to harm. Again, that's the thing about, you know, saying you want to kill somebody or hurt somebody. 
Like if somebody who is says they're a Nazi and they want to kill all Jews, like what Kanye West was doing, that's that is. Uh, I still don't support censorship. That's just me. I just don't. You could put them in a timeout. Oh, you could take down whatever it is that you don't like what it is. But I don't agree with like censoring or deplatforming individuals. I understand that. And so this idea that the information that was released regarding Hunter Biden or wasn't released two weeks prior to the election was a form of censorship. Now, did it ultimately play a role in the outcome of the election is the question. Yeah, I don't know. And it doesn't really matter to me either way. Part of the problem is, is that even if we knew that, does that make the other option more palatable? I also don't understand. I'm about as concerned with Hunter Biden's laptop as I was with Hillary's emails. I'm as concerned with Hunter Biden's laptop as I am with Jared Kushner's wheelings and dealings with the Saudis. And the fact that that doesn't get the type of coverage that it Well, that's have. the thing. It's like, so I get what people are saying if they're criticizing somebody for at this point in time going after that, because it's, first of all, it's old news. Second of all, in the pile of shit that we're dealt on a daily basis from a basically authoritarian oligarchy, that to me doesn't ring in the top 50. So maybe that's what they're going after. It's, it's very ambulance chaser, low hanging fruit. It's like you couldn't come up with sort of something new to, to be covering. That's what it's, that's how it speaks to me. If you're not addressing the core issues of the day that we are dealing with on a regular basis, healthcare, the environment, a living wage, or the biggest issue of all right now, sorry, the Hunter Biden laptop is not the biggest That's issue That's right my now. point. The biggest issue right now is the fact that the president of the United States, who has the audacity to claim that he's the most union-friendly president in the history of our country, oh, yeah. is one of the biggest union busting presidents in the history of our country who makes Ronald Reagan blush. Here's the thing. Now I definitely would never vote for Joe again. I mean, I wasn't going, I couldn't have voted for him again anyway, because I'm not an idiot, but, um, what yeah. They did, what that administration did. Just what a screw you to, to railroad workers. What a screw you. And the audacity of the normie Dems, whether it is the true bluers who are literally terminally online or even the media people who are trying to run cover for Joe and his administration are trying to basically say this is all the Republicans' fault. If the Democrats simply didn't How address- How is that even possible? If the Democrats didn't address this issue and didn't allow the rail workers to be thrown under the bus by the railroad oligarchs who begged Congress to get involved and Biden said, sure, we'll get involved. We'll stop the strike. If they simply didn't do anything and allowed the railroad workers to strike, which they may still do anyway. I don't understand how you can stop somebody from striking when the point of the strike is that we're doing this because we have to. Yeah, please. Yeah, it's not the best right now. Probably needs a refresh. Mm. Let's see what's in there. So on this day of do drugs and responsibly I'm, as an adult, I, well, you're going to watch how I do it. Honestly, yeah. So- Mostly, I agree with what he's talking about because his entire, and if you guys do check out his book, Drug Use for Grownups, this is not someone that just enjoys doing drugs and wrote a book about it. This is someone who has done extensive pharmacological research into, good, huh? these, into these drugs um, long before he ever even tried any of them recreationally. So this is someone who is very authoritative on this. But- um, I've never thought that 
any drugs should be, to be honest, should be illegal. Like that's a personal preference. I think it should be regulated. I don't want like children being able to go out and buy things, but we have rules for that. There's rules already for that. It's called being an adult. It's not complicated. I agree. I think people should be allowed to do whatever they want to their people, to their persons. I I do believe that Joe should be primary. And I believe that that person who should primary him is a labor leader slash organizer. I think it should be Joe Manchin. All right. Well, maybe, just maybe, our Manchin parliamentarian bumper sticker will actually come to fruition. It's not likely, but no. if you are so inclined. You guys get that if you become a $10 patron. Patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of our wonderful channel. You also get the Lulu sticker at the $10 a month contributor. But if you're feeling really generous and want to go $25 a month, you're going to get this wonderful tri-blend awesome Here Comes the Sun generational change t-shirt. You'll love it. It's a jersey. It's a jersey. It's a jersey. It's fancy. We're it's fancy. very fancy. We're fancy around these parts. We're very fancy here. Now, unfortunately, the bearer of bad news is that our small business neighbor, Apex Insurance Agency, will no longer be sponsoring our channel going forward. They have not really seen an ROI for investing with us the past couple of months, but uh, it is what it is. They this tried. is what happens. Well, the yeah. truth is we have no idea. We can't get an ROI on here. But we may be getting another small business supporter very, very soon who is in the solar industry. So I'm crossing my fingers on that one. That, frankly, is one that I think we would probably do much better with anyway. Basically, we just need some support. That's all. We just need some support, so we'll try different things. Paul, when you are ready, brother, we welcome you with open arms. And so ultimately, yeah, I think I hope they strike. I hope the the railroad workers strike. I hope that the UPS drivers strike. I think they should all strike, and I think they should do it over the holiday time. I do. Well, right now, the intention was to Why do you need permission to strike? The The whole point of striking. Well, the intention of striking was supposed to happen this Friday. That's when it's supposed to occur. And Joe made it his mission. I'm going. I'm going. So Joe Biden decided that- I'm in it. I am going to prevent the railroad workers from striking so they have no sick days. Remember, this is all over sick days. That's what they're trying to get. They're trying to get sick days. Bernie went out of his way to at least make sure that they got seven sick days. And they got five Republicans to sign on to this bill. And sure enough, 52 said yes, 43 said no, uh, five decided not to vote, and you still needed 60 votes to get it to pass. We were oh so close, right? And then, of course, if they had removed the filibuster and said, well, now you only need 50 votes in order to get this. Then we wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get it because then you'd have 47 votes. Right. It's all a game. That's why people think if we could just get Manchin or just get Cinema, then it'd be somebody else. It would be a different, it will be a different threshold to cover. But yeah, this really is very crushing to labor. It's very disappointing. And the fact that when I'm sitting here listening to them negotiate over how many sick days people can have, it's how I feel about when I hear people debating at what point I can or cannot have an abortion with my body. We're debating we're, we're, we're debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin regarding other people's lives. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. So really, really, you think that that the people who are the less at advantage, which let's be real, are the workers, that we can't just, I don't know, give them a little bonus, throw a little something their way. No, we have to fight over sick days. 
it's just, it's ridiculous. And the fact that our government thinks they should just come in and squash labor, like it means nothing. Oh, I so hope there's a big strike. And this is the problem with the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's not that there isn't relevancy here. I have no doubt that Hunter's role was to basically do illicit wheelings and dealings with foreign governments on behalf of Joe Biden, just like Jared Kushner did on behalf of Donald just Trump. Just like there's probably someone in every country doing it on behalf of whoever the oligarch is at the time. Because that's not, how it works. They say, don't hate the player, hate the game. Exactly. The game is broken completely broken. That's just a ex perfect example of corruption meets nepotism. Which is also so funny because when people are trying to suggest that, oh, well, Hunter isn't a saint. He's really just a person who needs help. But what about this other person? No, no. Here's the thing. There's no such thing as less corruption. It's either corruption or not corruption. And Right. You can't be a little bit pregnant. That's correct. You, can, you can't? No. Okay. Well, you get the idea. So therein lies the problem. And, and here's more importantly, I feel like we're just past this now. Like you guys can sit there and keep harping on the Hunter Biden stuff. I'm more concerned with people being able to like afford to eat. You know what I mean? Like, and I just don't see how that affects that. And it's sort of, what's the point of it now? Let's say we all get all access to all this very important information. Is it, is it really that important? It's not like um, Chelsea Manning. Uh, showing us that we're killing civilians and committing torture and all that stuff. That is stuff we really needed to know. That's important stuff. Is this stuff on Hunter Biden's laptop that we need to, is it, do we need to know this? Is it going to change anything? Does it help anybody? Like, do we need to know? Because that's what I, like, to me, how important is the information? Oh, good Lord. The information is really important. I totally reviewed it. And you know what I discovered? It, I discovered that the Constitution has to be completely changed. Have you, you haven't even read it. You've never read this. No, I've totally read You've it. You've never read it. No, I've totally read it. It talks about the art of the deal. No, the I don't deal, no so. it, uh, Excuse me, my floor, I talk. It's totally the art of the deal. And the art of the deal now is to ensure that Sleepy Joe is removed from office and I am rightfully put back in office. You had the first part of that right. Sleepy Joe should be removed from office. And I should totally be back in office. No, that's insane. No, it's totally, totally sane. It's going to happen. No. We're making America great you again. You can't even, again, you can't even beat Ron DeSantis. No, I totally, I, that total ingrate son of a gun. He is totally, he's in big trouble in more ways than one. And Whatever. He totally knows it. So in the meantime. Do you want, let me show you the emoluments clause that you violated. You want to see that? That's totally fake yeah. news. I didn't violate any causes. I am the great cause. The Not cause, cause of all, clause. I know cause. You were talking about causes. I am the cause of oh all that God. is great. Freak and show. you and Joe and all those terrible Democrats. Don't lump me in with Joe. No, Joe is, to you're totally with, you voted for Joe. You totally get responsibility. I regret it big time. No, you totally are responsible. And I am coming back in 20, we're coming back in 24. We're making America great again. Again. Without you or with you. Make a choice, Jen. You've only got one choice. Well, I'm not voting for one. Joe again. That's just not. That's happening. great. That's like a vote for me. So I'll take it. Believe you me. You can when take I whatever you want. I didn't I say I'm voting. Really for great. You. Really great. I won her over, ladies and gentlemen. Jen yeah, supports the Donald, and that's yeah, all there is to that's it. That's what it is. Me. I support See Donald. Yeah. So he, of course, hears about. Uh, 
you know, <laughs> that apparently there was election interference. And if you want to call what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop election interference, yeah, I, I would call that election interference. Did it decide the election? I, I don't know. And here's the thing. What's your recourse now? This is where this is what it comes down to for me as an attorney. Well, what, what are your damages and what's your recourse? Well, so Trump's, we can- Trump's idea of recourse is to scrap the Constitution, remove Joe and, and, and put Trump back in the White House. Well, right. But that's a done deal now. That can't happen. We're past that. So what's the redress from this point on? The problem is there is none. So forget it. Move on. Unless there's like there's nothing to fix that. OK, so and I don't care about Hunter Biden. So Metaopoly, the, 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 the thing in question regarding. Oh, Hunter I think Biden, they do that all the time. That's and again, it wasn't <laughs> when Joe was president. It's when he was vice president that this was going on. There are a lot of, again, equally well, disgusting, mind you. But here's <laughs> here's the thing that I still find so amazing with the average American. How much of what really goes on at the highest levels of government, do you think you really understand or even know about? Oh, you, none. None. 5%? No, no, because actually we know about 5% of what is going on just in general. So if you want to narrow down what's going on in like the inner sanctum, we don't know that. We just don't know that. Nope. We don't know that. But I'll tell you what, if he was doing it with, for every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. You want to spend all of our time investigating nepotism in, in high places? That, what, what, to what end? <laughs> like, like that. We have bigger fish to fry at this point. Let's let's go with that. You know, I don't care about punishing Hunter Biden. Well, it's not really a question of punishing Hunter Biden. It's a question of whether or not. Oh, so that's he's it. been there. I don't know what you were. So I wasn't. At him. Oh, I, I, I thought I, you I saw him. Eyes were glazed over. I thought you saw him. <laughs> I didn't. I was. You the bottom like line to do is, your we have a. We have another guest. We have, a, we have a broken republic, and we're trying to fix it. Yeah, do the best we can in order to make that so. Good vest, by the way. I know. Well, you know, I of, felt inspired. You were talking about the rail workers. I'm going. Well, speaking of somebody who probably knows a thing or two about the rail workers, because he is in the heartland of the United States, a state that has uh, been forgotten, and frankly, is uh, is getting uh, you know the cold shoulder from the Democratic Party. You must right be now. talking about Iowa. I'm talking about the great farming state of Iowa. Let me tell you, we've had lots of guests from Iowa and I actually really want to go to Iowa. And I have started putting together my list of things to do in Iowa because for every place I want, like I have lists for every particular Dyersville, I have to go to the baseball field. That is definitely a top priority for me. He is the reelected. Yes, you heard that right, ladies and gentlemen, reelected Democrat state order of the state of Iowa, where the other candidates didn't do so well. So let's find out what is the magic formula for being a wonderful candidate that crosses that, that crosses bipartisan lines. I have some ideas. Rob Sand, welcome to Generational Change. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Hi, it, it makes sense that you want to go to the Field of Dreams. You're wearing a baseball shirt, right? It, Jen. Well, he's a sports person. Style anyway. Yeah, he's a sports person for sure, his whole thing. But okay, yes. I, I'll, I feel the dreams was special. It was. I know. In fact, that game that the Yankees and White Sox had a couple of years ago is one of the best baseball games ever. And it was captured right there at that beautiful field. Oh, now, of course, it costs an arm and a leg to get a ticket to go there. So yeah, I just picture a whole lot of corn. It is. It is. It's a Dyersville has got a whole lot of corn. And unfortunately- yeah, well, it's not, but it's not very close to Des Moines. It's definitely a trip and a half in order to get there. The so, shorter, the shorter flight would be Cedar Rapids. Um, you could fly into Cedar Rapids in Eastern Iowa, uh, and then, the, or excuse me, the shorter drive. Then you wouldn't have to 
wouldn't have to drive so far as you would from Des Moines. I'm going to have to go to Iowa. No, and the truth is, is that I've heard really good things about Iowa. So Iowa is a wonderful place. Um, I think pe- people are incredibly friendly and welcoming. Um, it's beautiful. A lot of people think that it looks like the Dakotas or Nebraska or Kansas. Much hillier. It is not just flat as a pancake. Um, and we've got a lot of wonderful small towns all over the place that a lot of those Western states don't. A lot of the Western states are kind of, you know, you have Kansas City and then a couple of other cities and then vast uh, fields. And our vast fields are dotted with, you know, 99 counties and every one of them has a gorgeous, uh, uh, most of them very historic county uh, courthouse that's in the middle of the town square. It's a lot of stuff that people just don't 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 appreciate or don't understand. But you should come and visit and see it. Uh, if you like beer, we have one of the best breweries in the in the world uh, up in my hometown in Decorah, toppling Goliath. So all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, no, I will. I will eventually get to Iowa. Martin, be, I'm very sure about that. Well, when Jen ran for Congress against Wasserman Schultz in 2020, we had some really amazing volunteers on our campaign that actually. Uh, I think like seven or eight of them did a road trip up to Des Moines and Cedar Rapids to campaign for Bernie. And they actually were rocking these wonderful shirts. Well, it was our our shirts at the time. It was our campaign shirt. But the purple shirts stood out and people were asking questions and stuff. And yeah, uh, it's it's got a, a really great vibe. It's very small town America and people should embrace that. And Let's get right into it. What was the difference for you compared to the other candidates that ran statewide and unfortunately did not do so well? But you did. And clearly there's got to be some formula there. Yeah, um, it's, it's a good question. Um, our race is very close. And so it's 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 hard to say that there was one thing that was the difference because I think uh, everything did what it needed to do. Um, but my, you know, my background uh, is something that you don't hear necessarily a lot of from candidates these days. I like to fish. I like to hunt, uh, at least from Democratic candidates. Actually, this whole weekend, I was out uh, shotgun hunting with a group out in Guthrie County, Iowa for a deer. Um, I grew up in a small town. My first job was catching chickens. And so if you're going around in those small towns, you know, I, I understand what life is like there. Um, and I, and I, uh, my dad was from the same town that I grew up in. I was uh, lived there birth till 18. And so I think that connectedness really made me who I am, that that town really made me who I am. And as they say, you know, you can take you can take the kid out of the town. You can't take the town out of the kid, you know, use use whatever descriptors you have for whatever. But, you know, where we're from, I think, really does have an impact on us long term. And uh, then that's important to me. So I haven't I haven't uh, I haven't thrown that away or, or wanted to change that at any point in my life. I'm proud of proud of where I'm from and and, and really love growing up there. Um Another piece of it, background-wise, I spent seven years at the Iowa Attorney General's office prosecuting mostly white-collar crime and public corruption. So I, I, I love that work, too. Um, people in positions of trust and power in society deserve accountability, and it's really important for us that we hold them accountable uh, because when we don't, they tend to think that they can abuse the power and trust that they have and they won't have consequences for it. So I enjoyed that work that I was doing. Um led to me traveling across the state, uh, prosecuting cases in most of Iowa's counties, not all of them, uh, led to actually uncovering the largest lottery rigging scheme in American history, 
anybody wants to read about that, mm -hmm. I wrote a book about it that came out this year. It's called The Winning Ticket. Um, but I think that made a difference too. And then, you know, I, 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 uh, Chuck Grassley is famous for visiting all 99 counties every year. I actually do uh, 100 town halls. And then I have additional stops that I do on top of that every year. So I would also say that in terms of traveling and being accessible to people uh, that I'm probably the most accessible uh, elected official in the state. So that's that's a lot of stuff that I think that I think makes a difference. Um, certainly, there's other things, too, but that that's a start to the conversation. Absolutely. Um, there are a couple of really solid people that did make it into elected office along with you. Uh, we are very friendly with Kim Graham, who is the new state attorney of Polk, Polk County. Yeah, Polk County yeah. And then obviously uh, J.D. Shelton, who has been on our podcast as well, who is a state representative. Uh, that to me, I, you know, I think you got to take your victories where you can. But the common theme, I think, amongst the three of you is that you all support non-corporate economic populism, which is sort of like a lost art these days regarding that message that really resonates with people. And lo and behold, we're facing a situation right now where rather than rebuild that political infrastructure in Iowa through the Democratic Party, they've not only decided not to, to pursue that route, but to actually scrap Iowa's first in the nation caucusing and move it to another state. And to me, that's very bad politicking in a lot of ways. I'd like to hear your honest thoughts about, you know, what that experience has been like as this just came down the pike in the past few days. Yeah, you know, I understand. I, I don't get super uh, involved in this stuff. I think we've got some people who are active from Iowa who, who work on it more closely, and I keep in touch with them. Uh, but from my understanding and talking to them, you know, they've been advocating for Iowa's role for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm frustrated by a lot of it. And I've had national uh, uh, reporters, members of the media who have said to me before, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been to a lot of different states. Nowhere do people do as good of a job as asking questions of these candidates as they do in Iowa. And I think that testing of candidates really matters. Um, a lot of people on, tw on Twitter, as I've been talking about this, seem to confuse the idea of testing candidates with being a pundit. Where they're like, well, why should Iowa go first? They haven't been picking the people who win. Well, sometimes that's not the point. Sometimes it's having people that people thought was gonna, were going to do well who then don't do well. And so it's picking who loses. Um, yeah. and, and, and to me, I just – I look at that and I'm like, look, I'm not – I don't – this isn't about any, anyone who thinks that this is about punditry, that politics is about punditry, has a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of all of it, whether it's whether it's the caucuses or whether it's how we vote. We should be voting for and asking questions of and supporting whether it's caucus going or in the ballot booth, people we believe in. And we shouldn't be trying to guess what other states are going to want to do or pick who other states are going to want to do. Um I think a part of that, too, you know, I, I wish we had some more freedom to do that in terms of electoral reform with an Alaska-style system. That would be great. Um, but the, the Iowa caucus, I think, has done a good job of testing people. And I don't understand the idea that where they want to say, oh, well, Iowa hasn't been as competitive lately, um, so we don't want to invest there. It seems to me that that's the places that you want to invest. It seems to me if we're a big tent party uh, – that we would want to go out and talk to the people who maybe haven't agreed with us very much lately and ask them what's going on and, and, and see, 
what we can do to help rebuild those ties. Um, and I don't, it doesn't seem to me that we would want to just go to places that are, uh, that we're not having any troubles. Um, I, I don't think we want to get further into our echo chambers, not talking to each other. I think it's a good thing to be talking to people that you disagree with. That's a big problem we have down here with our Democrats. But in general, they like their echo chamber and it's they just it's either. See, for me, I go back and forth. Is it that they just have no concept of strategy or is it that they're just so in an elitist bubble that they really just don't give a crap? You know, and I and I and I think for a lot of people in political office, it's kind of both of those things. And they just get very stuck in their little echo chamber and they want to just maintain their little fiefdom and that's about it. And their goals are no longer to actually serve if their goal ever was to actually serve. So I think a lot of it is why are they there? And people who are there to serve, I think, will understand that you need to commingle with all different kinds of people. Yeah. Right? And then, in fact, that's the point of it. Um, I make a big I make a big point of that with the way I run the auditor's office in Iowa, which also you want to go back to why I won. You know, um, my team are, are at the at the top of my office has been a Democrat, an independent and a Republican. Um, I appointed the independent and the Republican to those positions. I wanted to have a team where people felt that no matter who they were in the state of Iowa, someone who at least thinks somewhat similarly to them was involved in all the decision-making that we do in our office. The Independent and the Republican, in fact, had made campaign contributions to my opponent in 2018. I ran against an incumbent. They had been working with the incumbent and they supported her. But I didn't use that as an opportunity for vengeance or retribution. I didn't use that as a, I didn't make the choice to say, hey, if you cross me politically, I'm going to make you pay for it. I use it as an opportunity to say, actually, I want to serve everyone and uh, that a team of rivals is probably going to put the state in a better position than someone who's just siloing themselves away from people they disagree with and keeping their team small. I, I don't think that's a, a good way to do it. And I think, uh, you know, we need more of the public service and less of the partisanship. I think you bring up a really excellent point. And this also lends to what I thought, if there was a legitimate infrastructure that was espousing the right message as you have done, there is no excuse. I don't care how much of a fixture he's been in the state of Iowa in what is now over well over a generation. But Senator Grassley should not have been reelected to the Senate. Uh, you get to a point where now you realize that he's going to be there if he's alive until he's 95. There is something to be said for being able to do the job, do it well, and also advance a new generation, even if it's within your own party. But in this case, I felt that there could have been a real opportunity to get Grassley if the infrastructure was there. Do you think it was simply a question of not having enough political infrastructure in order to defeat Grassley? Or do you think there's more to it than that? Obviously, I'm an outside observer, so I am not yeah. an Iowa and I can't speak to that. And, you know, I... I that wasn't my race. I can't talk to uh, what those dynamics look like or, or what their approach was because I was focused on taking care of my own. Um, Grassley, this is the closest race he's ever had. I think he won by, I think it was 10 points. So, I mean, historically, um, he's been uh, really kind of an institution in Iowa. And I think some of that sheen has worn off uh, as he's become uh, more partisan. 
but I don't, it, it's, it's hard to say that, um, you know, there's ever any, ever, ever just one cause of anything. Um, if you, if you want to talk about age limits, you know, the Iowa, the Iowa Supreme court says, Hey, to its own justices, once you're 72 years old, you're off the court. They do mandatory retirement. <clears throat> I don't think that that's unreasonable. I think that we have bottom rung age limits. And so having them at the top side could be a good idea as well. Um, but, you know, until we have them, well, Grassley can run. And if if people want to vote for him instead of voting for the alternative, then we got to go talk to them and figure out why they felt they should do that. Um, two things that I think were really impactful in Iowa this election cycle. Uh, number one, you know, one of the most powerful forces in American politics day to day is incumbency. And so we had two people running at the top of the ticket our governor and Grassley, um, who were both incumbents and incumbent Republicans. It was the first time that that happened in Iowa in 30 years, 30 years. So the, the Republican party for 2022 was in just a very strong position. And then, you know, the other, the other thing that typically happens is the president's party typically gets punished in the midterm. Um, and this is the first time that we had a Democratic part, uh, Democratic president who had not won the state of Iowa in 60 years uh, since since Kennedy. And so those were two things that just sort of made Iowa a tough, uh, a tough uh, road to hoe this cycle. You know, whether or not things stay that way or not, uh, who knows? But I do think that Mike Franken had a good run. He ran he ran a strong race and, uh, you know, he gave he gave Grassley a real scare and it ended up being his closest race ever. So, yeah, but, yeah. You know, the, I think to go back to the question of, you know, should should he have been reelected? I mean, that's just that's up to people and how they want to use their vote. And I, I think one of the things that we oftentimes do as Democrats is uh, we forget, you know, that, that people can vote however they like. We you know a lot of people like to say, oh, well, what's the matter with Kansas? Why is it that uh, people are voting their economic self-interest? But we don't say that when we're talking about donors and wealthy people who support Democrats, right? It's, a, it's inherently condescending. And so I always, my attitude is always, well, if, if we haven't convinced somebody uh, to vote or to vote the way that we're voting, uh, they're free to think that way. And maybe uh, it's because they weighed everything and they just have different priorities than we do. Maybe it's because they weighed everything and there's one issue that stands out more strongly for them. But we're not going to get to a place where we uh, can win them over if we're just kind of looking at them saying, well, something must be wrong with you for doing that. Uh, it's deplorables. It's a basket of deplorables. And go figure that that strategy doesn't work. It's so it's so elitist and condescending. And the Democrats, unfortunately, reek of that. And that is what I think is turning off so many people, because regardless of whether or not they're jumping to the GOP, they're definitely leaving the Democratic Party like that. The, the, the party's bleeding like a sieve. And you happen to be in the part of the country where the Democrats are being punished for it, probably more than any other place. They're being punished for it in Iowa. They are being punished for it in Wisconsin. And they would be punished for it in Illinois if it wasn't for Chicago. So a lot of these changes are occurring. Uh, there's all of these shifts that happen almost every election cycle. And I think right now, 
probably more than ever. And that's why, like I said, uh, you know, we really wanted to get you on the podcast because you were an anomaly. Yes, you were a, you know, obviously an incumbent, but you were also somebody who was able to win in spite of what the political winds were saying. And clearly what you're doing is right. You are delivering the right message. You are, you are somebody who is from there who people can identify with. There is something to be said for running for office and people not being able to connect with you, people feeling like there is this sort of elitism, this talking down to yes. and things like that. And the fact that there isn't a bigger uh, almost referendum on the Democrats right now from their own people because of what just happened to the railroad workers, I think is equally as concerning especially going into 24, but just in terms of what the actual principles of the party are, because we believe in labor probably more than most people here in South Florida. But I would imagine that in the, in the, in the heartland, in the upper Midwest, labor is everything. And when people aren't feeling like their party is fighting on their behalf from a labor standpoint, that's a big problem a very big problem. And I'm sure that's something that you've probably noticed and, and I would assume you probably agree with us on. That, that there's, uh, there's a lot of people, I think in small towns, mid-sized cities and rural places who want somebody to be fighting for them economically. And if they don't, if they don't feel like someone's for the little guy, then Republicans use that to revert the conversation and they're thinking back to cultural issues. Exactly. Which, which your typical, uh, you know, the, the, the way that the way that Fox News portrays a Democrat yeah. is uh, not aligned with them. The kind of Democrat I am, it's like, well, OK, he owns guns, he hunts, he fishes. So, you know, I'm not too scared of him. He seems like a pretty regular guy. Uh, but I but I do think that we need to do a better job um, of of supporting working folks. I mean, that, and, and, you know, a piece of that, too, is, you know, we, we assume, again, you know, we can't we can't just say like, oh, well, you, you know, we're going to honor your economic self-interest. So you must vote for us. They might want to vote on cultural issues. And if they're if they is, then we if do. We want to find a way to talk to them about that. That makes sense for them. But we also want to just, and this is what we do, uh, I do as state auditor a lot, honor the fact that they are taxpayers. We don't, you know, Democrats rarely, if ever, talk about the importance of how we use tax dollars and using them effectively and using them efficiently. And and it's a, it's a really important people issue to a ton of people because people are paying taxes every day, Right. They are, that's money out of their pocket. That's their sweat. That's their aching back. If they're sitting at a desk, that's their carpal tunnel. That's their time away from their kids. And if we believe that there are things, if there's a role for governance in society, if there's things that governance should do, then we should be the champions of making sure that we have good government. We should be the champions of making sure that tax dollars are used efficiently and effectively. Because if, if we if we never talk about that stuff, if we just pretend, OK, you are your job, as opposed to you also might be concerned about what you're paying in taxes, then we're missing a huge opportunity to talk to people. Because the fundamental piece of that is, I think, you know, none of us love paying taxes. Uh, as, they, as the saying goes, it's the price you pay for living a civilized society. But a lot of people, if you tell them what it's for, 
and you can and you build their trust and understanding that like you you take the idea of it getting wasted very seriously they're more open-minded than we give them credit for yeah i agree whenever we talk about populist issues that are working people issues our message is always on point and most people do tend to agree with a populist message that's why it's populist and i you know the way you explain that but you're right that then the GOP comes in and they'll win them over on the culture crap. And then that puts the Democrats in this position of constantly like fighting the culture war and being completely distracted. But my concern is or my thought is that that's exactly what a lot of the party people want at the top of the party is they want us to be distracted by that, because the truth is they're still in with corporate America every bit as much as the GOP and they don't really care about labor. So they kind of like that distraction because they get to come off sanctimonious against the GOP. And yet nobody's talking about labor issues. You know, and you uh, our experience on, on this may be different. I think that most people who are involved with the party fundamentally, you know, they 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 want uh, as long as we're pretending to live in a world where you only get two choices. Right. Where you can only think two ways. Uh, you know, they want the one that aligns with them more to win. And I think there are a lot of conversations about how you get there, how you do win. Uh, I, I, you did say earlier, and I do agree with this. There are a lot of insiders who are really mostly just having fun and they're interested in doing it for themselves. They're not interested in public service. They're less interested in the impact. They may have been at one time, but then they hit the point where they're just like, well, I like having access and this is fun for me. And uh, and that is a problem. I think we really have people who are involved who are really focused on actually uh, improving people's lives, solving problems. And so if we don't do that, then we end up in a situation where people perceive that and they say, you know, that doesn't seem like those people are making decisions with my best interest at heart. Um, but that, too, goes back to I mean, I think one of the biggest problems that we have is sort of this, um, you know, this fiction that there's only two ways to think. Uh, the idea that we're forced to always have, uh, you know, be choosing from the lesser of two evils in November. And, and frankly, that we don't, you know, in Iowa, we have closed primaries. If you're an independent voter in the state of Iowa, you don't get to participate in primaries. How un-American is that? You know, we, we have that. Voted. Yeah. Yeah. We celebrate Independence Day every year. And yet we tell independents, the voters, like, no, you don't get to participate in this. We, we didn't, we're not sure about that. You're going to just have to wait till the general let us let us people registered with the party be the ones to decide who the nominees are. I think one of the best things that we could do to actually get a system that's working again, that's actually solving problems would be to move to an Alaska style system where. Well, yeah. Combined with open primaries. Yes. Yeah. gets to participate in the primary. Everyone is equal as a voter and their voice gets heard in the primary. And then in the general, you can do rank choice. Uh, personally, I like the idea of review voting. It's like give everybody from one to five stars and the highest average rating. Congratulations, you get elected. But yeah. if you think about this from That's the perspective, cool. thanks. Uh, if you think about this from the perspective of candidates, it also makes a difference because, you know, there, there's so much cynicism in the political system and especially in operatives now where they're just like, well, we know this isn't true, but you should just say it anyways because we want you to win. And all you got to do right. is convince them that the other guy's way worse than you are. No, they just want to get paid. Well, there's that too. But when you see when you see the amount of money that these candidates will get, like the amount of money that Joni Ernst's candidate uh, opponent got, uh, when you see the amount of money that goes into, let's say, the Georgia race and things like that, 
Uh, I can't fathom having that type of capital and not being able to win. Unless, of course, there is a commodity within the electoral infrastructure, which is what we call the consultant class, that is siphoning off a significant amount of that money. And one of the bigger problems on the Democratic side than the Republican side is that, at least on the Republican side, if you are part of the consultant class, if you will, you have to produce results. On the Democratic side, I've known consultants that work on campaigns, they could lose 10 campaigns in a row, and they'll still get hired with a very fat salary and benefits to basically lose another race. Right. And that, to me, is the money, the infrastructure, as you talked about, Rob, you know, you have... To, and credit to him, the grassly approach of I'm going to go to every county and I'm going to meet with as many people as I can. The political, the value of that infrastructure, more so than having consultants, is immeasurable. If you're willing to travel, that's, you know, not making any plans here. But if you ever did plan to run for the U.S. Senate or even for governor, You've already laid that foundation of I'm going to meet with everybody in this state, whether or not they agree with me politically. And I think that crosses a lot of boundaries. And in terms of success within campaigns, that infinitely is better suited in terms of where the capital value is versus the whole consultant industrial complex, if you will. Well, I, I so I, I agree with the idea that there's a lot of consultants who get overpaid, who don't who don't have to uh, produce results. I do think that that's a problem. I don't think it exists for Republicans as much as it exists for Democrats. Um, the 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 volume of money piece is concerning to me, um, but you also have to ask, you know, where does that come from? You know, my attitude typically is, uh, you know, I'll, I'm not going to take anything with strings attached. If somebody wants yeah. to support me because they believe in what I believe in, or I said something where they're like, that guy gets it, you know, great. I'm happy to have your support. I've never taken a check from somebody who has said, this is to do this thing, right? Or right. I need you to do this thing or come back to me later on and say, you know, I supported you, but you didn't do this. And so now I'm upset and I won't support. Okay, fine. I'm not here to do what you want. I'm here to do public service. And if you believe, if you share, share my beliefs and you believe in me and you think I'm here to do the right thing, great. And if not, I'll go tell people that you, you know, tried to get me to do this one thing and offer me this much money for it. And then we'll just raise that in small dollar amounts because I think people would appreciate the honesty. Um, they do. Absolutely. But the bigger the bigger piece of that. So I'm happy to take uh, a check from someone if they're giving it to me for the right reasons. If it's the wrong reasons, don't I'm not going to think about it. The the bigger cost, I think uh, you 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 with that with the campaign finance system is number one for, for it makes corruption easy for corruptible people. Number two, though, is the time that it sucks away from doing things that are actually relevant to solving problems. Because you're sitting there on the phone so many hours just raising money uh, as candidates instead of actually going out and, uh, you know, talking to the voters, understanding their issues, talking to other office holders, uh, seeing if you can come to an agreement to address an issue. And, uh, and, and that, I think, is a piece of it that I think oftentimes is underappreciated. So, but I go, you know, the other thing is I go back to just the idea of that your incentives as a candidate, if you, if, if, if you're supportive of me, you know, with ranked choice or review voting, I, I might want to let folks know if Jen and I are running for the same office where we disagree, but I want her supporters to 
still, you know, in the current system, let me put it this way. All I got to do is convince them that you're worse, right? I may be a right. thief, but my opponent is a thief and a murderer. And <laughs> voters are like, well, will you, we, can you quit stealing from us? And I'm like, no, but I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> and they're like, darn it, you got my vote. I guess I, I do like being alive and I hate being stolen from, but it's the lesser of two evils, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but if we have a system where I actually have to honor my opponent's supporters and I have to honor where I agree with my opponent and also honor them as a human being, right? <laughs> if in ranked choice or with review voting, I want your voters to at least like me a little bit, right? To not be mad, yeah. to be like, okay, I disagree with Jen on these issues and here's the reasons why. And I'm going to say so, I'm, I'm more likely to say so respectfully, right? And it, it, a lot of this, our inability to solve problems, our inability to make progress comes from this sort of like uh, the, the, the partisanship and the divide where we don't want to do something if it's going to be beneficial for someone on the other side because their voters are never going to vote for us, you know, which, which is just an awful way to approach things. It's again, it's not public service. It's partisanship, right? Yeah. If a system that in, uh, corrects the incentives for elected officials, we would be able to go a long way uh, towards, towards fixing that. Yeah. The tribalism is a huge problem. It, it's yes. become, and in certain places, it's definitely worse than others. The people we have had on from Iowa have indicated to me that the, it's definitely not the same there as it is here, but the tribalism, it's, it's like, they're like a cult. They're like a cult and they don't ever point out what their own leaders do wrong. They don't ever aspire to grow or be better. They just be, it's very, uh, it, it's just, I feel like it's the antithesis of being able to make any sort of yeah. progress. Well, and I think, and, and it's true for people. There are people in both parties who have that mindset. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that I that I really tried to emphasize in my reelection campaign is that I do the opposite. If you go to robsand.com, like on my about, I have a PDF of examples of times where I have defended Republicans because it was the right thing to do, or I've criticized Democrats because I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I think that's important because people want to have some level of just truth and integrity, you know, instead of just saying like, well, Hey, everybody, I guess I'll be the worst person that puts the blue hat on this time around. So rally around, you know, they want to see someone who's willing to say, hmm, you know, although I believe with this person on a lot of things and we're working together on a lot of things, pretty sure that was a bad idea. And I think it's important that we say so. And the more that we do that, I think I think people are ready for that and, and appreciate that. So. Definitely agree. Uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. Obviously, all the best in your next term. And obviously, you've got a lot going for you going forward. You're very reasonable. Yeah. I try to yeah. be. I think it's important. <laughs> That's one of my three. I always say everything in reason, passion and justice. And for me, it's like everything should be reason first. And we tend to in this country do fear first and then profit second. And and I tend to think reason is generally the best, but people get very fear based in their in how they process. But I appreciate you're very reasonable and I very much appreciate the best it. experience we had volunteering for two local candidates in the election that just passed was that they were nonpartisan races. It was nice. And you could have the most vote blue, no matter who, and the most MAGA red, and they will agree on that candidate. Yeah. The second you remove the R and the D from their name yes. and you just talk about the issues. Yeah. They're there. They're yep. right there. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was fun talking thanks, to you. Rob. Thanks, Rob. All the best, brother. All right. See ya. 
He was lovely. Yes, and a very productive conversation. And there you go. Somebody who definitely understands the value of ranked choice voting in open primaries, which, again, how do we bring more and more people together, which is obviously the key. And rather than being distracted by the culture wars, Hunter Biden's laptop and all these wonderful things, uh, it, it just seems to me, forgive uh, forgive the background noise if you hear it. Yeah, no, the, the, the landscape. We're getting, we're, no, people. we're getting thrown into a wood chipper. <laughs> We've had our time. We've been a little too honest for our own good. I have to go pick up Graham. So the good news is, is that on Wednesday, we will be back at our regularly scheduled time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Who do we have coming in on Wednesday night, Jen? I don't Mike Figueredo of the Humanist Report. Oh, Mike Fettuccini. The girly Fettuccini. Mike Fettuccini is coming on the show. So that'll be really great. Looking forward to talking with him, of course. Uh, I don't think we have another guest as of right now. So no, so Mike is our main guest. I'm not sure if we'll get anybody else, but we certainly hope you guys enjoyed the conversation today. Make sure to like, subscribe, share, get it all out there. Some really productive conversations today. We hope you guys liked it and we'll see you on Wednesday. Bye all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.